0: If your building gets hit by hail and hail is a covered peril in your property policy, you got coverage. You're going to have to pay your wind and hail deductible and then anything on top of that, you're good. If COVID 19 didn't cause property damage, then where is the trigger to the coverage? And then you got force majeure and a bunch of other, you know, the government made me shut down or whatever. I mean, there, there's other avenues that people are pursuing coverage uh, as well, but. You know, I would say every policy is different and it's, uh, it's very much like your, your podcast with, with James Hill, when you're talking about the banking industry and how they've been grappling, like just have a conversation with your agent, right? That's what they're there for Yep, and, and be open and, and communicate and, and figure it out together. Cause these are definitely unprecedented times.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort. I'm excited to have a friend of mine, Michael Moore, who is the president of Locked In Companies for the Fort Worth Market a big global insurance company. Uh, Michael and I have a fascinating conversation. Uh, He kicks it off with a great story about his family, eighth generation Texan. Don't think I've actually met that before. Um, How he grew up, what brought him into insurance, and then a really deep conversation about the state of the insurance market, how it works, uh, really trying to make things easier to understand in the uh, insurance world. And then how he has built the brand of locked in here in Fort Worth and continues to grow it, um, in his first couple of years as president. So enjoy. Really interested to talk today about the, kind of the state of the insurance industry, Michael's story and kind of everything in between of what's going on. Michael actually just started a podcast, so it'll be, it's fun to, uh, share the mic with him. He knows, uh, what my role is like now because he shares the other side of the mic now with his new podcast, The Climb, which is fantastic. Um, so let's just jump into it. Michael, thanks for joining me. Chris, thank you so much.
0: Excited to be here. And you're right. It's it's a much different perspective sitting on this
1: side of, uh, of the podcast chair it, for sure. It is. Uh, it was on Michael's last week or a few weeks ago and said, I think I'm more nervous being on the other side of the mic than I am on this side. So... Uh, Hopefully you're not as nervous as I was. No, last night
0: felt like uh, a lot of nights um, growing up, either before a big hunting trip or big ski trip or something I was really looking forward to. I just, I didn't sleep a whole lot because I was geared up to be here and, (laughs) and, uh, and jump into whatever you want to jump in today. So thank you so much for having me.
1: You bet. Well, let's just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey to Lockton.
0: Sure. No, um. Yeah, I think it's important to say that uh that I'm an eighth-generation Texan. So there's not a lot of those around. But uh my family's been here a long time on my dad's side of the family. Um, my great-great-great grandfather, Carl Hilmer Ginther, uh came over here from Germany and started a flour mill in in Fredericksburg. And then after a few years in Fredericksburg, he realized that uh you know the, the the booming economy was was just a little bit further east in San Antonio, and so he moved his flour mill to San Antonio, and uh, it became the the longest single family owned business in Texas and the longest wow. running flour mill in the United States uh, until we sold it a little over two years ago to the Pritzker family. Wow! So it was had yeah, been there for about 150 years. So. You know, I grew up uh, seeing a lot of sides of business down in San Antonio, attending the uh, the annual meetings with my family. And then my grandfather, I would say, you know, kind of defining people in my life, uh, obviously, besides my one wonderful parents, uh, would be my two grandparents. My grandfather on my dad's side uh, came back from World War II and uh, came from a long line of politicians, and he fulfilled a... a an unfilled term as mayor of Richmond, Texas, which is right outside of Houston on the 59 corridor, in 1947. Wow! And he was mayor uh, until he died in 2012. Wow! So um, longest-running mayor in U.S. history. Oh. And then on my mother's side, they're they're British. My grandfather, um, you know, up until his last days, would would cut his hamburger with a knife and fork. Uh, always maintained his British accent. Just always such a posh-looking guy, right? That's yeah. a, an English term. But he was a, an ace for the Royal Air Force, which means he had five confirmed kills. And I've got a really uh, amazing photo that I keep in my office of him uh, shaking hands with Winston Churchill Wow, on the battlefield. So um, big shoes to fill with, with two grandparents like that. But yeah. um, I grew up in Dripping Springs. I guess we were... Uh, You know from a a long line of people learning to uh, live off the land so we had a farm in dripping springs and 50 acres of it was dedicated to organic farming that was my dad's one of his many passions whole foods when they had one location on south lamar we were one of their main suppliers so i grew up on an organic farm i think i still credit it to why i never really knock on wood get sick or get the flu but i mean we woke up and picked what we ate every day. We had 160 chickens. And I mean, it was true organic farm-style living. Um, My dad was also real passionate about education. And so I grew up attending uh, the first Texas-based Waldorf school, which uh, the Waldorf education is a European-style education uh, founded by a guy named Rudolf Steiner. And it came over to the United States a long time ago, but uh, took a while to make its way down to Texas. So my dad helped found the Waldorf School in in Austin, which today is K through 12 and doing really, really well. So grew up in Dripping Springs, uh, had a wonderful childhood. I mean, it's it's an amazing place to grow up. You knew everybody. There was one stoplight. Um, I can remember when I got my driver's license, I also got a charge account at the gas station <laughs> in the Mexican food restaurant. And your dad would just come by once a month and pay it for you. I mean, it was just, it's a way that that's, that's hard for people today to maybe understand how wonderful it was to grow up like that. But then we had Austin 30 minutes away. So yeah. if you needed the, the big college town feel, you could go in and, and see a football game, but always retreat back to Dripping Springs. So got through high school and uh, attended the university of Texas, had a wonderful time doing that
1: as you can imagine uh we won't talk about those four years <laughs> yeah. except you got a great education that's
0: exactly right it could be a whole nother podcast yeah uh, we'd have to put that little e next to the podcast for that <laughs> one um did a, a semester abroad in spain which certainly gave me a, a huge global perspective early on and uh and then after college um i sold real estate kind of like you in in college just kind of as a side job, something to do, uh, something to have a little extra money in my pocket on the weekends. And then, you know, right then was kind of the tail end of the dot com boom. And so I had some buddies that were moving to Dallas and I thought, you know, that that sounds fun. Let's give that a try. And so I got into recruiting in Dallas. Uh, We were recruiting Java and C++ programmers for big tech companies because they were in high demand. And so, That really launched the the ability to, you know, through words and strategies influence outcomes, which is kind of what sales is all about. You know, hundred plus cold calls a day. I mean, just that that true boardroom grinding. Yeah, tough way to to start, but it it certainly uh, gave me an appreciation for what I did not want to do, right? Which was make that many phone calls a day. So that was that was a good first start, and uh, I recruited so many people out of this one email marketing company up in plano that the head of sales called me and said you're obviously really good at what you do stop recruiting all my people and i'm like well (laughs) if you pay them a little better give them better stock options like they wouldn't leave you know this isn't i'm just doing my job yeah and he was like well do you like your job and i said no i hate it (laughs) and he said well what if you came and worked for me and i was like fantastic so That launched into an email marketing job and learned a lot about, you know, how, I mean, email is a whole new medium of communication, right? And that was in what year? That would have been probably, see, I graduated in 99. That would have been like 2001. Okay. And so, you know, was driving up to Plano every day, kind of learning um, how much I didn't like commuting. And uh, it was around... Somewhere in that time frame uh, that I met my then girlfriend, now wife, who very smartly lived in Fort Worth, not yeah. Dallas. <laughs> and I started spending a lot of time over here. My, my roommate uh, at the time in Dallas was from Fort Worth. And so, you know, just weekends turned into longer weekends. And then I'd start coming over here during the week and driving back over there. And I just noticed, like, this There's something special about Fort Worth, Yeah, and it's the biggest small town in the world, and I'm not from here, so that's going to take a while. But I think if I put in the legwork and really become a fabric of the community, this could be a great place to not only marry my wife and, and have some children, but establish a career. So I came over to Fort Worth and started working for a politician that was trying to go from the House to the Senate. That was an amazing experience because one of my jobs was to put out all of his campaign signs. And so he had a, you know, he had a big big area to cover. And so I really learned Fort Worth. And I was just meeting with a lot of other elected officials and city leaders and, and just kind of got to figure out the, the game early on. And uh, so that led to a job down in Austin where I really got to see how the sausage was made during a legislative session. And that was fascinating. And uh, after the session was over, um, we had done a lot of work with a company that was engaged in sort of influencing where business and politics intersect. And so one of their clients was Lockheed Martin. And they said, hey, would you come run that account for us? And I thought, well, that would get me back to Fort Worth. So fast forward, Mary Shannon, start having some kids. And it's a great job, um, but typical with defense contracts, they were always over budget and behind schedule. Yeah. So trying to pay a consulting firm more for the same job we were doing was was a challenging task. So I'd sort of reached the the pinnacle of what I could make there, even though it was really fascinating work. And so about that time, I met a gentleman in Fort Worth named Bill Meadows, uh, very politically involved uh, from here. And he was running an insurance firm called William Rigg. And so he started explaining to me over many lunches and breakfasts, kind of how the insurance industry works. And it was just really appealing. It was like, there's not a lot of industries out there that you get that dividend built in, that recurring revenue. If if I do a good job and convince you to become a client of mine and my firms, by virtue of how policies work, they renew every year. And so if you renew with me again the next year, then yeah. I get paid again. And that that model just sounded like a, a really good, stable style of living. I knew I was going to have to work really hard to get there, but yeah. um, it was just really appealing. And then it was you know, I thought, I mean, nobody likes to talk about insurance. I mean, I couldn't even stand like renewing my auto insurance at the time. But when you get into the commercial side of it and you're working with companies like yours and they've got these complex issues, it becomes less and less about insurance and a whole lot more about how do you go about financing risk? How do you go about thinking about risk management? And you get into the grain of the company and the culture. And so I thought, you know, that could be a really interesting career path and I love talking and meeting new people. And that's kind of how this business works. So went to work for William Rigg, wonderful culture, wonderful company. Um, it was the time a few years later in their maturation to be acquired by a firm called Hub International. So that occurred and that created an opportunity for me to go over to a local firm in Fort Worth called Gus Bates and start their property and casualty division. Wonderful family, had an amazing nine plus year career over there getting that division off the ground. You know, I think hard work and determination always creates opportunities. And uh, so I wasn't looking, but uh, Lockton, who's um, the largest family owned, independent agent in the United States, in the world, actually, came calling and said, hey, would you come and run our Fort Worth office for us? And so now I am one of uh, four presidents in the Texas series uh, that includes offices in Fort Worth, Dallas, Houston, and New Orleans. And it's just kind of off to the races. We're Fort Worth office is doing great. We're 171% up uh, year over year. Wow! since I got there, uh, things are going really, really well. And so besides branding us in Fort Worth and doing all of the things necessary to to show that we're here to stay, we're here to recruit locally, we've got bricks and mortar location in the 777 main building downtown. I also work with the other presidents and leadership overseeing uh, 750-ish employees and about $400 uh, in revenue uh, for the Texas series, which makes us
1: the largest
0: independent agent in Texas as well.
1: That's awesome. So here I am. Here you are. You said a lot of things in there. Before we kind of dive back into Lockton and insurance, you had mentioned the organic farm. Yeah. And you were one of the first uh, providers to Whole Foods back in the day. I guess maybe two questions there. Um, how did your family get into organic farming before? I mean, at that time, organic farming wasn't a thing. Right. And then, like, what was Whole Foods like? Like, when did you see Whole Foods start to become this huge thing that it it became?
0: Well, I, I do remember my dad telling me, you know, son, um, always pay attention to opportunities because if I had bought stock in Whole Foods back in the 80s, you know, things would be a lot different yeah. now. But, you know, I think if you... My dad's an amazing individual. If you look at sort of his interests at the time, and you study the Waldorf School and Rudolf Steiner's thinking, farming and that type of education just kind of go hand in hand. And so he's just always been a student of that, and um, he just had a passion for it and found a beautiful piece of land in the Texas Hill Country and just got after it. Yeah. And so, you know, my days were spent, especially on the weekends, we were open to the public. So, you know, we, my brother and I would count up how many, you know, ears of corn you picked or uh, potatoes or, you know, (laughs) buckets full of raspberries or whatever, and add it up and charge you a fair amount and, and move on. You know, as far as the relationship with, with Whole Foods, I mean, I was so young. I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of, of insight into it, except that you know, we were providing a service to them and they were happy about
1: it. Yeah. And then you mentioned the Waldorf education. What is the difference between a Waldorf education and maybe a traditional American education?
0: Yeah, so I think you could draw the most similarities to like a Montessori school here. Yeah. Um, but you, here's a really different aspect of it. So like what we consider homeroom, I had the same homeroom teacher, Miss Cook, from first grade all the way through 8th grade. Oh wow. So I spent 8 years. I mean, this lady like absolutely had a gigantic influence on my life. Wow. And then the way that you might have you know a block of study of something like if 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 you were going to dive into Greek mythology. Mhm. You'd study it for like six weeks. I mean, you went really, really deep into topics. Um, Kindergarten through eighth grade, you always took two languages. Um, Mine were always German and Spanish. And then they had some weird aspects to it, too. Like we we did this thing called Eurythmy, which people are going to make fun of me now. (laughs) It's almost like this interpretive dance kind of stuff. And I hated it, but it um, it. Dived into like all these principles of vowels and sounds and apparently it was good for your, you know, aura or something, but
1: why don't American, uh, like, I think you're starting to see that show up more today is why are, why are students kind of blanketed with this like stock set of classes that most people aren't interested in at all, rather than trying to find out early on what people might be interested in, letting them go deeper there, why is American education never kind of come around to that idea? Man, that's a good question. Because it's so run by the government, like it's kind of government. I think
0: it's it's because it's too institutionalized. Yeah. Um, it's just sort of, it's always been that way. Yeah. And it's so, you know, from a public school perspective and, and full disclosure, I, I did public school for high school and, and loved it. Um, there's so many wonderful things about it. But the funding mechanism, you know, tied back to the state budget and standardized tests yep. being such an important barometer or or indicator of like how you're doing. Yeah. Um, I think just creates a, a stagnant situation. Yep. And then we just we don't pay our teachers near enough. Yeah. I mean, my, my wife was a, a teacher for many, many, many years and just how hard she worked and how, I mean, it wasn't a nine to three job yep. and you don't get summers off. I mean, all those things that we think teachers get. And so I think until we can figure that out, right. Uh, it's, it's just more of the same.
1: Yeah. It's crazy. My wife was a teacher for five years and they get little to no pay. And then they're also asked to like pay for the students, like little like a pencil gift or they're constantly buying stuff with their salary to give to the kid i mean it's by the time she was done buying stuff for her classroom and her salary it's such a low-paying job it's crazy exactly it's hard to attract you know long term a lot of talented folks to teach our our kids if you can't get paid anything to do it yeah or just to to keep them in it you
0: know and and you you want that teacher that wants to be there forever For sure. um, because they just, you know, they, they bring so much to the table when they've got years and years and years of experience and to, you know, to rely on, to, to teach our kids.
1: So one other thing you said, you took an email marketing job in 2001. And I think it's interesting because I'd like to know what email marketing looked like then because we're now in 2020 and we were kind of coming full circle on all these different marketing tactics and finding out that email marketing is still like one of the best forms of marketing that you can do. It hasn't really, it was never, it hasn't gone out of style like so many other things have. So was there a difference in what email marketing looked like in 2001 than what you're seeing today?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think back then they were more scripted, you know, non-HTML. I mean, it, it just didn't have the the power and the punch and the embedded videos and things that we can do today. But certainly the idea behind if you send an email and you've got links in there that people can click on or you've got metrics in there if they forward it on or how many times they opened it. I mean, it, it just that that information is power. Yeah. Uh, that hasn't changed, I For mean, sure. that was the whole impetus behind uh, this this firm. So, you know, kudos to them early on to kind of being pioneers um, in that effort. But uh, I think that a lot of the principles are still the same. It's just better and and more of it now.
1: Oh. Yep. All right. Now we're going to start diving into the the juicy stuff. So you said right. you sat down with the owner of William Rig, and he told you. Uh, how the insurance industry works, and that made you, uh, that piqued your interest. So I'll ask the loaded question, how does the insurance industry work? (laughs) Gosh. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow. Well,
0: I think one thing for, for your listeners to know, for anybody to know, is that while it's not sexy on the outside, I mean, I don't know anybody that I graduated from college with that. That went into insurance, unless maybe their, you know, their dad was in it before them. It's just got this stigma of like boring. Yeah. And it is. I mean, the policies and terms and conditions, and there's not a lot of, of, of sexiness to it. Right. But the reality is, is it is ingrained into business as banking or accounting or anything. Yeah. I mean. You can't go do what you do with the bank covenants that you have without an insurance policy. Right? Business owners wouldn't be willing to take on as much risk if they didn't have the backstop of the insurance policy. Right. And and that's on the property and casualty side. Right. Then you got homeowners. Then you got employee benefits, which we could spend hours talking about. Yeah. the issues that we have there but you know it it's just it's a it's a necessary evil if, yeah. if that's a, a good way to describe it yeah. that that is required but far too many business owners don't either have the time or the staff or the interest to really understand it and they leave a lot of dollars on the
1: table because of that. On And we'll get into property and casualty, especially that's something that impacts us a lot. But on employee benefits, I read something the other day that I just never really thought about. But um, I think it was saying something around like, we're one of the only countries where your health benefits come through your work, really. Why in America does is the employer burdened with the I wouldn't say it's a burden. Well, I mean, you can look at it as a burden, but uh, the weight of employee benefits is put on the owner rather than people getting their employee benefits, just like they would get their car insurance or anything else. Yeah. Um, Which is really employees like health insurance.
0: Yeah. I mean, y- you get all the ancillary things too, like, you know, dental and vision, mm-hmm. short term disability, long term disability, et cetera. I think the reason that, Again, it's almost back to like your education question. It's just like it's always been that way. Yeah. And to unwind and unpack the whole employee benefits piece is, 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 is tough and complicated. But, you know, you've got the, the insurance carriers. Yep. You know, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, United, et cetera. Um, and then you've got hospitals. And then you've got the contracts between, The carriers and the hospitals, and you've got in network and out of network, and it it just creates uh, a a huge pool of inefficiencies. Yeah, and then you you know back to your point on on it being on the employer's back. I mean, next to payroll, yeah, nine times out of ten, it's an employer's single biggest line item against profitability. Right? I mean, it just hits that bottom line and rarely does it ever go down yep. year over year. It goes up. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a a necessary piece because a lot of employers, excuse me, a lot of employees are looking to their employer is, I mean, that's a decision-making factor when they're like, Am I'm sure. going to go work over here. Am I going to go work over here? Um, so again, it, it's sort of ingrained in the way that, that we do things, but until we can figure out a better way to fund our whole health insurance system it it just it falls on the back of the employers and while there are individual policies available the insurance carriers and actuaries can't get a good enough census of like your employees base if it's not all grouped together right so they they've got to have that data to understand Okay, Chris Power's company's got X number of employees, and they're all between the age of 20 and 37, and they're predominantly male. Okay, here's their rate. And then you've got Michael's company that's 150 employees, and they're between the ages of 40 and 60, and they're predominantly female. Okay, that's a whole other set of issues. So that data is necessary to drive the rates. And until we can figure out a better way to do it, it's just gonna be there.
1: When it when it's being priced, if you had a, and you don't usually see this, it's usually kind of culturally driven, but we were talking about this before we press record, a, a company that's 20 to 37, call it predominantly male, uh, might have one rate, but then you get into these much bigger companies that might have anywhere from 20 all the way up to 65, and they're getting another rate. I guess my question is like, how much does the older folks age? Ske- like, could you have, you know, a company of hundred people, maybe ten people over sixty, but there's so much weight put on that it adjusts the insurance dramatically for the other ninety percent that aren't over sixty.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, each, each individual risk is, is sort of underwritten to what it is, but yeah, I mean, you can, you can absolutely have a small percentage of your employee base influence the entire thing. And then you got to go into what do your claims look like for the last few years? Do you have a bunch of hospitalizations? Do you have premature triplets? Do you have cancer? Do you, I mean, all these things factor into at the end of the day, right, I mean, these insurance carriers are not nonprofit entities. Sure. They have to make a margin, too. And their margins are pretty small. So yeah. all, all that stuff is factored in. And then, you know, it, it spirals from there in complication as you get more and more employees, sort of like um, you can do on the property and casualty side. You can entertain taking on more of that risk yourself in a partially self-funded or fully self-funded plan. And then you buy stopgap gap on top of that. And, yeah, yeah, yeah that all funding mechanism.
1: So, and then as you get into the property insurance or property and casualty side, it doesn't seem like those rates are really going down either. It seems like insurance is ticking up kind of year over year. Is that because property values keep going up? So the amount that you're insuring keep going up as well, or is there other factors there? Yeah, that,
0: that that's one of probably huh. 50 data points you could, you could point, but You know, the property and casualty market is interesting, and it's going through what we call a hard market, um, much more so than, than really most of the people that would be touching your policy, meaning your agent or the account manager behind the agent or the underwriter at the insurance carrier that you're with. They probably weren't even in the business the last time this happened this severely, which would have been the 80s. I mean, we, we've had other upticks after 9/11 and after the financial crisis and things, but it, it's it's coming and it's not going away. What's a hard market? So a hard market means that your your rates. So every every insurance policy has a rate times the exposure to equal your premium. Right. And those rates are going up year over year over year. Doesn't matter if you were claim free. They're just they're going up. And the reason for that is that when I mean, it's all a function of of capital and when there's less capital in the market and there's shrinking appetite for your risk and the cost of capital has gone up. It's just inevitable. Your your insurance premiums are going to go up. So back to your point, yes, properties cost more than they used to. I mean, to to just simplify it, when you and I first started driving and we ran into a telephone pole, we could probably go get that bumper replaced for a couple hundred bucks. Right. Right. Now, if your wife backs her Escalade into a telephone pole, you've got sensors on there, backup cameras. I mean, that bumper... Plus the labor at the dealership, because that's probably where you're going to take it to get fixed, is going to cost two or three thousand dollars to fix your bumper. Yep. Well, your auto policy was probably two or three thousand dollars, so you can see the imbalance right there. One little fender bender, and the carrier has paid out your entire premium on your bumper. Right. Like that's not a sustainable model. Yep. Uh, and then you factor in, you know, just global weather patterns from mudslides to uh, fires to hurricanes to tornadoes to tsunamis um, I mean our weather patterns are just not predictable anymore and we're getting multi-billion dollar hail claims in San Antonio like when did that start happening yeah um so we're just as a as a as an industry we're sort of grappling with you know how do we how do we still make, insurance affordable and then the buyer too right i mean when you've had the better part of a decade where i'm showing up and i'm giving you good news you know yeah chris you you increased your your real estate platform by a couple million square feet and i I lowered your insurance premium like those days are over for right now yeah um but the 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 decision makers got used to you showing up delivering good news and so as an industry and, and working with our guys, it's like, we've got to very early on in the process, make sure you're extremely educated around the why. Right. And that data is power and we're benchmarking your risk against all of the portfolio risks we have inside our practice that match the parameters of yours to shake. This just this isn't just you, Chris, This is this is everybody in the real estate industry.
1: So how does a hard market end? Because it sounds like it has nothing to do with really the consumer. It's all these variables that they can't control. Like, how does that come to an end? I mean, I could say on one end, if insurance got so expensive, uh, real estate prices would actually have to drop because it's a line item in a PNL. If it Absolutely. was so expensive to buy insurance, I'd either have to stop buying property, <laughs> buy it cheaper. Like, how does it? What what usually is the catalyst that ends a hard market? Sure. So, I mean, again when you look at
0: carriers and they've got to have capital to offer terms to you, right? You'll get more new carriers and new money wanting to enter into a market because they, they, they see something, yeah. they see a change. Maybe they've got a something else figured out. Um, So certainly when more capacity comes in, then that eases the, the rate fluctuation up. Oftentimes it's, you know, you're, you're going to have to take on more of that risk to make it affordable. Right. Uh, or you got, you know, well capitalized guys like Elon Musk that says, I'm going to self insure my DNO premium for my companies because I'm not paying that. Right. So it, it, it's a lot of different factors, but it's, you know, what I would say to the business owner is to make a very educated decision around how you manage that.
1: Right. Is there any disruption happening? I mean, technology is disrupting so many industries. I know there's a company called Lemonade that just went public that's doing renter's insurance. Did you buy any of that stock? I didn't. I, I didn't either, but I sure wish I had. I know. Um, is there disruption happening that obviously uh, anything where prices are escalating quickly, disruption can help change the direction of those pricing? Is there anything interesting happening that you're seeing that could make it you know, change the insurance industry across all different sectors? No, sure.
0: I mean, if you're not paying attention uh, to technology, you're going to be real sorry. I mean, what they kind of call insure tech, like these technologies that are out there um, are not going away. And some of them are really good. And some of them I have my questions about. You know, for if you take um, online platforms for like just your auto policy, I mean, I think. Those are probably really good. There's a lot of people that understandably so um, want to make sure that they're getting the lowest premium possible. And so to have an online platform or an app on your phone where you can check that is a great idea to try to commoditize uh, the the commercial property and casualty insurance market where it's really incumbent upon me and my team to understand your business and understand your PL and and understand how you think about risk, I don't think technology can replace that. When you think about actuarially figuring out risk, there's a lot of technology out there that would show weather patterns, that would show The probabilities of your property in X county versus your property in another state, another county experiencing weather related claims. I mean, you've got to you've got to have all that at your fingertips. But, you know, I think the biggest disruptor currently is trying to figure out on a go forward basis if if worldwide pandemics are not going away. You know, the last hundred plus days, the majority of my time has been on the phone with business leaders, talking about business interruption yep. for COVID nineteen and is their coverage there. So, in most instances, um, the if you put yourself in the shoes of the insurance carrier, right, right they're underwriting to known risks and trying to charge a fair premium for them. You go back to the God awful events of nine 11. I mean, no actuary underwrote a property policy or a general liability policy to contemplate planes flying into buildings in New York. Right. So there's been a lot of, 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 Um, advances since then with, you know, the TREA Act and things like that. Um, That's what's going on right now in regards to COVID-19. You kind of got three different buckets of the way your property policy is written. Either it's very black and white that any type of, of disease or pandemic or anything like that is absolutely not covered. Then you've got a lot of gray area, which is where the attorneys are starting to have a lot of fun. And then you've got uh, instances like, and this this was born out of, of SARS and Ezekiel, and, and previous to that too, you look at, at Wimbledon, okay? They bought a pandemic policy in the event they had to cancel Wimbledon. I think they bought that policy at approximately $2 million a year. For 15 years, they paid 30 million bucks in the event, and they got a check uh, for 141 million dollars. Wow! So it's been around, yeah. But the average buyer isn't concerned about that or thinking about that. It didn't truly understand the economic impact
1: of having to shut down because of this. So I think a lot like for being a business leader, most policies, it seems like that black and white's pretty obvious in their policy. It's a hard no, you're not covered. Then you mentioned this kind of gray area. Is there like a black swan event for the insurance industry where if some judge or some Supreme Court rules in favor that there actually is coverage that needs to be provided by the insurance that Back to your point about legal, like now all lawyers can take even maybe those black and white policies and start picking those apart again.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a concern. And, um, you know, through through our government relations division inside our company and, and people that we we work with, we're monitoring that very closely because it's, it's really on a state by state basis of bills that are being proposed that would say, you know, regardless of the language and the policy, Mr. Insurance Carrier on the hook for this business interruption. If something like that happened uh, across the board, I, we, we, I mean, there's, there's studies that are already out yeah. on the amount of business interruption claims that are known to date and the amount of surplus that the insurance carriers have on the side to just pay out the claims for the policies that they have, it would, it would wipe out the industry within a couple of months. Yeah. I mean, so I don't see that happening. Yeah. You know, I think fair is fair. And and certainly with our clients, you know, the only way to determine coverage is to turn in a claim, right? So if you've suffered a business interruption situation, and you feel like that was due to covid-19 we're not discouraging you from turning in a claim that's that's your right to, as a policy holder right but the likelihood of coverage because here's here's kind of where the the rubber meets the road it has to trigger the policy if your building gets hit by hail and hail is a covered peril in your property policy you got coverage. You're gonna have to pay your wind and hail deductible, and then anything on top of that, you're good. If COVID nineteen didn't cause property damage, then where is the trigger to the coverage? Right. So that's and then you got force majeure and a bunch of other. You know, the government made me shut down or whatever. I mean, there's, there's other avenues that people are pursuing coverage uh, as well, but. You know, I would say every policy is different, and it's you know, uh, it's very much like your your podcast with with James Hill when you're talking about the banking industry and how they've been grappling. Like, just have a conversation with your agent. All right. that's what they're there for. Yep. And and be open and and communicate and and figure it out together because these are definitely unprecedented times.
1: And and we don't have to go too far into it, but I would imagine. I had never thought about even asking for pandemic coverage, but that's probably going to be the next thing that most people are starting to ask for. Has that already been kind of established as what pricing would look like for that or is it everybody's trying to kind of figure out what that might even look like?
0: Yeah, no, I mean again, there there were especially for for something like a big event like a Wimbledon, there, you know, there's been policies and and pricing out there. Um for the average business that's being figured out back to um, available capital right various carriers around the world are trying to figure out how to finance that and is that is that financially gonna work not yeah. only for them but for the the policyholder
1: around attorneys and and legal um it's not just insurance but I've talked about this some with some guests, but just something I talked about, you know, maybe more in private. We just kind of live in a world where everything's exposed now and you see attorneys that, you know, you see billboards and commercials. Have you been, you know, did you have lead in your paint in the 70s? If so, call in. It seems like there's so much risk now baked into the system that like every possible thing has an attorney that's willing to go go to bat. We we recently we were dealing with an issue on an apartment building. We just finished um, had a, somebody tour it, and he does this for a living. He's got 130 of these cases, but he's an attorney that finds irregularities in FDA. I'm not FDA or um, uh, handicap. What's right, it? Uh, right, right? Yeah. And if they can find like a door that's yeah, ADA, an, ADA, yeah. Uh, an inch, uh, not wide enough, they'll file a lawsuit and they want you to go do a million dollars worth of updates to the building to get it in ADA compliance. And I just feel like, you know, talking to people 30, 40 years ago is like people weren't suing each other for every single thing. And now it seems to be the case. And that's why you're seeing insurance go up and the, pr- the price of risk like in the world is... I think so much more than people think, and as your business gets better, it just seems like you're a target for just everything. Is that why you're seeing a lot of maybe insurance uh, policies and premiums going up? Is just the risk of legal action on everything?
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the the plaintiff bar is is stronger than it's ever been, and I mean, this isn't uh, this isn't a, a podcast medium to to bash the yeah you know, the attorneys in the legal system, but you know. The way that it's set up now, with the, kind of that side of the legal piece, is you know that's a business for them. Yeah. And if they can get a class action lawsuit going, they stand to make a lot of money. Yeah. So until that model changes, yeah. Call them entrepreneurs, just like us. I mean, they're just trying to make a dollar right, wrong, or indifferent. I for mean, sure. we can disagree with it, but it's it's an available medium for them to go do that. Yeah.
1: And you have private equity firms that are set up now just to back people to sue somebody else. I mean, their whole investment thesis is winning lawsuits.
0: That's exactly right. It's crazy. And you know, you talk about billboards. I mean, we, um, obviously, being the the Texas series of Lockton, we write a whole lot of oil and gas business. And you look at these lawsuits that are coming out now, um, just penetrating not $10 million in umbrella limits, but 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, and you you get these verdicts coming down from a jury of their peers, uh, it's just not a sustainable model. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that goes back to one of those many data points, right, that we were talking about um, that's just skyrocketing insurance costs because of the legal action. And a lot of general liability policies or umbrella policies, your defense costs are outside that limit. So it's not even eroding that million dollars that you have or that 10 million in your excess limit. It just goes on as long as they have to defend this this case. Now, I will say that, this is just my opinion, whether it's a business owner or the insurance company, and in particular the companies, they need to do a better job of not just paying the claim, right? Like just go fight for what's right. Right. I mean, I know that it's cheaper to settle and maybe again, maybe that's some other kind of bridge we've got to see over and figure out. Right. But the, if the attorney knows that there's a very large likelihood that the carrier is just going to settle for X, right then why wouldn't they sue? Right. Right? Right, wrong, or indifferent, they're going to go get some money out of the deal. Or the private equity firm is going to go back in and get some money out of the deal. So
1: it's a mess. It's a mess. A couple of questions just on underwriting. You always hear when you're getting your policy, okay, we're going to go talk to the underwriters. Are the underwriters just filled with these quants and data scientists that are just constantly running numbers on risk? And like, what does an underwriter's shop look like?
0: Yeah, so... You know, in fact, when, when you and I sat down uh, before, you know, when I, when I came to talk to you about your podcast, I was interested and I and I really enjoyed them. And then we got kind of talking about insurance. You said, you know, tell me like one thing that maybe I wouldn't have heard before, or somebody wouldn't have recommended. And I said, well, have you ever sat down and talked to your underwriter? You kind of looked at me like, wait, you can, you can do that. Yeah. I think that's where, you know agents or the account manager responsible for renewing your policy miss a true opportunity, because back to your question of what does an underwriter's world look like? It looks like a cube in an office building stacked with renewals, and you can't even see them behind there. And they're they're pretty overworked, and they don't have a lot of time to really think through. They're just trying to get your renewal off their desk and move on to the next one. If I can rely on my relationship with that underwriter, because I've showed him or her that I care, you're a person. You're not just somebody that's producing a piece of paper. Right. And then I connect that relationship with that underwriter to you, the business owner. And now they've come out and they've seen why you're different. They've seen the way that you think they see the way that you take those extra steps to mitigate risk, well, they're going to do a better job for you. So back to that ties into the question of like technology, you still can't take out the human aspect of this. Right. And the give a shit factor. Right. right? I mean, if, if they give a shit, yeah, because we've all connected a relationship now, they're going to work a little harder for you.
1: So you would just ask, Hey, um, can I meet my underwriter? Yeah. And they, and they have to introduce you to them.
0: Well, they don't, I mean, again, I think that goes back to the relationship that your
1: agent has with the carrier. Right. But that's the way it should work. And why, um, and I might botch this question, but I can't go to Lockton and have you, uh, if I have a building, say, I need you to price what my policy is, and then go to uh, some other firm and say, I want you to price it. Once you've sent it to an underwriter— or a carrier. Once they've priced it, company B can't go to that same underwriter and carrier and get it priced. There's like a you're you're kind of red flagged, right?
0: Yeah. So you're you're definitely hitting on a um, a nuance that that causes a lot of confusion and, and frustration on the commercial property and casualty side of things. So if Fort Capital is going to take their portfolio of real estate holdings to market. Yeah. And you're gonna go look at five, 10, 12, however many different carriers. Right. If your current agent takes the takes that risk to those carriers and gets a full submission in there, then you're right. No other no other agent can go to that same carrier and get a quote. That's just the way it's been set up. That's the way it's worked for however many hundreds of years. Yep. And so, you know, in a business owner's mind, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. You know, I want the best deal. Yeah. Well, again, it goes back to analytics, trust relationships. If I'm showing you year over year over year that I'm doing that for you, that should ease a lot of your mind. Now, maybe a claim goes wrong. Maybe we agree to disagree on something throughout the servicing of your account. There are much better ways to manage that renewal process than saying, well, I'm just going to go get four or five agents and let them all beat each other up in the market. If an underwriter, again, back to their world, is sitting at their desk and they get the same submission from five different agents, they know nobody controls that relationship. Again, back to how hard are they going to work to produce the best possible result for you? Right. It goes back to relationships.
1: Okay, one one more question then on you mentioned like hail storms in San Antonio, right? Is there a company that's crunching all the numbers and pumping out the risk and then all the underwriters and carriers are kind of taking those data points and that's how they're feeding their pricing models? Or does each carrier underwriter do their own data and number crunching around? roofs in san antonio or is there like a central source where all the data is kind of flowing from
0: yeah no there's i mean there's definitely central sources that they pull that from and then um you know certain carriers will have their own sort of in-house technologies
1: and and uh, data points for gathering that okay last question kind of on insurance and i just kind of want to talk about locked in and your new role yeah. and what it's been like the last 90 days flood insurance you see things like what happened in Houston a few years ago right. and FEMA goes and uh, I guess to, to set the stage, you can buy a property or a house that's not in the floodplain and your insurance is X. And then a massive flood happens in Houston and all of a sudden FEMA, which is uh, the, I guess, the regulatory agency that sets the map for what is considered floodplain now might say, I know you bought your house in the and it wasn't in the floodplain but it now is, and for those that have owned properties and floodplains, your premium used to be a dollar, now it's $2 a year, it's doubled, which can make properties worth less value. Right? Is that something that will just continue? There's no grandfathering into a floodplain, right? Like if the floodplain changes and you're in it, you're in it. Yeah, that's, I haven't gone
0: back and, and studied you know, sort of floodplain rules in a while, but I think you're exactly right. And then, you know, when you get the, the government backed flood policies, I mean, that's, that's just sort of is what it is yet. You know, you, you can go buy it directly, you can buy it through an agent, but, um, the pricing kind of is, you know, it, it just goes back to a lot of the theme of this conversation that just insurance is just involved in everything now. It is. And it, You know, would you be able to borrow the money from the bank to buy that house, whether it's in the floodplain or not, without an insurance policy? You know, can it, whether it's a $200,000 home or a $2 million home, you know, people are typically financing that somehow. Yeah. And they, the bank is going to want to know that there's an insurance policy on the other side of that. You know, when it, when it gets into, you know this is this is where the industry um, could use a little cleaning up, in my opinion. And when you have catastrophic events like Katrina, or Harvey, and you start getting into arguments around wording, like was it wind-driven rain or a flood? You know, it. I get it, but it that's just so frustrating. Yep. It's like if they paid the the property premium, and they had the right coverage. Let's not argue over words. Let's get them back to
1: And I think that's where insurance sometimes gets its bad rap. Sure. It's like you think you're paying for this risk coverage and then it happens and it's like like you just said, like, oh, well, it was wind driven. And it's like, how would a somebody buying a policy ever even know to exclude those words until it's actually happened?
0: Well, and it's, you know, that goes back to Your the legal Yeah, well, and then and the, the legal in the court systems because you can you can understand something a certain way for years and years and years and renewals, 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 and then you get, excuse me, a court case that changes the, the whole way that that works now. Right. But yes, it goes back to communication, relationship with your agent, an agent that is going to shine uh, at the time of a claim, not crawl back to their office and say, well, you know, Good luck with the carrier. You got to have somebody that's going to fight on your behalf.
1: All right. So Lockton comes knocking. When did you actually start with Lockton? Yeah. So I started in
0: January of 2019. Okay.
1: So you had about a year and a little bit before this mess started. Right. When you started there, you know, you said that you're up 171 percent year over year, and your goal has been to kind of build the brand within Fort Worth. How did you kind of go about building the brand within Fort Worth? Like, did you have a game plan going into it or did you just kind of get there and listen and kind of build a strategy from there? Like, what's the last year look like for you?
0: No, great question. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share a quote with you that I, I wrote in the business plan as we were as we were kind of planning this out is, uh, you know, I have a lot of really wonderful, smart people um, that have Done this before me. I mean, you look at our Dallas office, they started that 20 plus years ago with a couple people. You know, now it's 400 people and they occupy 110,000 square feet in downtown Dallas. Houston, the same thing. So, a lot of really, really great mentors that are um, helping pave the way. But inside the business plan, I said, influential people are never satisfied with the status quo. They are the ones who constantly ask, What if? And why not? They are not afraid to challenge conventional wisdom and they don't disrupt things for the sake of being disruptive. They do it to make things better. Yep. And I was, I wanna do things better in Fort Worth. I wanna be, I want locked in in Fort Worth and beyond to be a resource for business owners that are looking for a better answer. Yep. And so that's the game plan, is to recruit the best talent
1: that we can
0: and to be a relevant resource when needed for business leaders in the community.
1: I think you made a, a comment earlier. You you kind of said insurance is also can be, uh, you can also say it is like risk management. Right. From a business owner's perspective, like just calling it risk management makes it sound more interesting sure. than, than, than insur- insurance. Yeah. And I've just noticed one of the things that you have done kind of even back to email and I've received more from you kind of on the state of the insurance over the last 90 days as being a resource. Like this is what it means. I think so many companies right now, there's nowhere to go to, to learn and get educated. And I think you've done an incredible job of just like educating people on what's going on. Cause most people don't know the risks that are out there until it's already happened to them. And then it's too late. No, they don't.
0: And you know, when when the economy's great and you're making way more money year yeah. over year than you did before and your insurance premiums are going down yeah it the strategy behind it can kind of just get lazy yeah um, and you just sort of accept your renewal for what it is cuz it was better than last year yeah well what if it could have been a whole lot better than last year right yeah. it's like you can never take your foot off the gas of that pursuit of the best possible rate for my exposure, right? Yep. And so I think you know that that's what we're doing. Um, we're just we're branding, we're hiring, um, and we're just a resource when when people need us.
1: So did Lockton exist in Fort Worth before?
0: It has, yeah. It's uh, uh, one of my um, partners, Ryan Hyman. Uh, his dad was uh, athletic director at TCU, Eric Hyman, many years ago. Um, He's, he's been here the longest and has done a great job but I think um, you know back to you know working for a politician early on really understanding the 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 ground game in Fort Worth um, it was it was bringing me and kind of a shot in the arm to to take this to where our other partner offices have done before us I mean we'll we'll be like Dallas will be like Houston, will be like Kansas City, will be like Chicago, will be like New York. We've got 120 countries now that we've got offices in. Wow. Um, so it's just, uh, it's a model that is incredibly entrepreneurial. I love the fact that, you know, of all the, I think there's 13 firms out there now that do in excess of a billion dollars a year in revenue. And we're the only one that's family owned and operated. Wow. Um, so, not that there's anything wrong with being publicly traded or having private equity behind you, I think that's a great model too. But it's a key differentiator for us because we're not chasing EBITDA margins, we're not chasing a stock price. Right. We're
1: taking care of our clients. Yep, I love it. All right. So March starts creeping in. Yeah. Uh, you're a year into to building, locked in. Uh, how is your kind of day to day? changed and maybe before we even go there, how did Lockton kind of react to it? Are y'all um, assuming the office kind of got shut down, went remote? Or are you back? Like what is that? What's been the COVID response?
0: Yeah. So from a Lockton perspective, um, incredibly impressed with the center of the organization and our leadership. <clears throat> Excuse me, we're not trying to win the race back. And because technology wise, we were already set up you yeah. think about we're in pretty much every major big city and the commute times now for employees to get to work is just not as efficient yeah. as it could be, right? I mean, they're spending hours on a train or a subway or in Uber or whatever. So we already had a really good platform and and the technology behind it to, to have employees working from home. So very early on, it was do not go back to the office, go into the office, get whatever you need and stay at home and stay safe. Yep. And it's still that way today. We, we are not because it's working yeah. and because our clients are not suffering any type of change in service that they're used to. Right. I mean, they're having to adapt a little bit, just like we all are to renewing their policies over a zoom call. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, from a from an employee that is always in the office standpoint, right, the people behind the scenes processing claims, processing endorsements, payroll, et cetera, they're all doing it from home now, and it's working great. Um, from a producer forward type person that is out in the community meeting with business owners, they've kind of left that up to us. And the business owner, I mean, just have a conversation. Do you feel more comfortable meeting in person? If so, let's do that responsibly. Yep. And then, uh, you know, I'm not going to require anybody on my team to be there unless they want to be.
1: Was there, uh, since y'all are in 120 countries, were y'all getting early signals of this maybe before the rest of Fort Worth or, you know, your peers were feeling it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, has it made its way... Um, you know, unfortunately across the globe. Yeah. Um, we were constantly on the phone with offices that had experienced it before us to try to not repeat any mistakes that may have been made along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What is the rest of the year as a leader, not just within insurance, but just a leader of a company like you kind of mentioned we're not on a rush to get back or we've settled into a new normal. Do you foresee being back into the office by the end of the year? Is it hard to see what next week's going to bring? Like that's got to be challenging for you uh, just to kind of project.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm not, I I do want to say, I'm not saying that our model is right for everybody. That's just what's right for us. I mean, there's certainly businesses that can't do that. Yeah. And, and we totally understand that. And, you know, if we're advising them, we're, we're advising around how to make sure that happens because there are businesses that. That flat out can't survive working from home, right? right. From a locked-in perspective, I sure hope we're back to work soon because yeah. as a uh, as much as I love spending this much time with my wife and kids, I mean, I'm a socially outward person yeah. and just trying to do this every day from home is uh is really taxing. Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to Kind of when I first thought, you know, this this isn't going away and and this is going to be the new way of working. I mean, that was the impetus to starting our podcast because I needed a creative outlet. I yep. needed something else to do yep, uh, to occupy the time. So it's, you know, I've been on this planet for 43 years and this is definitely the weirdest time, time uh, by far. <laughs> Um, so, it, you know, I think it's just, but it's, it's been fun, Fun's probably not. The, it's been interesting because I've also just turned into it. And I spend so much time talking to smart people like yourself, just getting this, not only Fort Worth, not only Texas, not only us,
1: but just global perspective on what this means. Maybe my last question before my question about you starting your podcast, and then we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up, is you're in a unique position that you're the president of the Fort Worth market. You share the, the state with four other people, but then you share the country with lots of market leaders. Is there something that maybe Texas is doing, I don't even want to say better, but gives you hope in what's going to happen in Texas versus the challenges that maybe people are facing if they're the market leader of LA or New York city or some of these cities that seem to be uh, maybe hit harder than we're being hit. I don't know if I asked that the right way.
0: No, I think I see what you're, what you're getting at. I mean, it's certainly, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to our guys in, in Chicago and New York and LA and Phoenix and Florida. And, you know, especially in, in like New York and California. I mean, whether it's just getting out of the state altogether or just buying a house sight unseen just to get out of the city. I mean, that's occurring right now. What what does that really mean? And what is it going to look like? You know, I think from the state of Texas, I mean, we're just blessed with such an amazing economy and such an amazing platform to do business. Um, I couldn't be more bullish on North Texas and the opportunities to, uh, to not only grow Lockton, but just to, to invest and, yeah. and to to give back and to, to just watch where this Metroplex is going because um, it isn't slowing
1: down. I agree. I, I talked to some friends in Colorado. They said that May and June, like all the inventory in Colorado has been sold and it's uh, people coming from all over the country. But like you said, kind of sight unseen they're buying houses there's like no inventory right if you look at colorado right now and you're seeing that in texas i mean single family i think dr horton started 3300 new homes in the oh last few gosh. weeks wow yeah it's going to be interesting to see all right i'll wrap it up on um the climb which is it's been just really impressive to watch from afar uh you get it started if you haven't listened to the climb it's coming in a couple of weeks i think it's july 16th that's exactly right that's uh, when we'll launch our first two how has it been to run a podcast and uh what's what's the purpose of the climb and what can uh, maybe some of these listeners look forward to
0: sure well again like we said when when we had you on as a guest you know thank you because you you introduced us to johnny and uh it it just it launched so much faster than it would have if we had kept trying to watch <laughs> you know, webinars at midnight and how do, you know, buying the book of like, you know, podcasts for dummies or whatever. Yeah, But the the purpose is that storytelling has just gone away. I mean, like we were talking about before the podcast, so many decisions and influences and thought processes are, are derived from a, a Twitter feed or the fact that we've just got to cover everything 24 hours a day. And so when we all kind of retreated home and I was talking to Bob Weirman, my my co-host up in Chicago, you know, people were starting to tell stories again in their backyard. And, you know, I talked about being a, an eighth generation Texan. I mean, I just, I grew up learning history through stories. Yeah, And we're very passionate about that not going away. Yep. So the purpose is to bring on guys and gals like yourself and the six others we've recorded so far to tell their stories because, like the the title says, the climb crossroads and defining moments, we all have them. Yep. And they're all interesting yep. and they all influenced. And so by telling those, if if that creates an opportunity for someone else or the opportunity to not make the same mistake, yep. um, then I think our mission will be accomplished.
1: I love it, man. Well, thank you today for coming in and sharing the mic. It was awesome getting to hear your story and learn a little bit more about insurance and how you're leading uh, your business and really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been great. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Hey, everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.